Good morning. If you're out getting a few bits this morning, do bear in mind that what you put in your trolley says a lot about you. This week, the basket of goods and services used to measure inflation, the Consumer Price Index, if you're getting fancy, it brought us its latest list of what's in fashion now and acted as a reminder of how things have changed. Our hopes and dreams are secret aspirations often expressed to the medium of fruit and veg. In the 1990s in Ireland, we were standing agog in crazy prices, staring at something we had, we'd never seen it before. What is it, Mary? What is it? For the first time, broccoli and peppers arrived into the shopping basket. 1995, we saw broccoli for the first time. Look at it, Mary. Look at the gorgeous broccoli. Isn't it so? Look at the peppers, how they shine. Will we buy a few? I don't know what. We'll just hang them up at the front door. The broccolis. Hang them out to show off to the neighbours. That'll show them. That'll show those bastards. We're good enough for broccoli. People would say things as well like, I'm on the muesli now. I'm on the muesli. Honest to God, Bridget, I haven't moved this freely since the great skitters of 1975. This is very good for the gut, they say, the muesli. Yeah, very dry, but um, very good for you. Filtered coffee as well. That's new in the basket. Ended the gripping monopoly of Maxwell House Instant. The children of Ireland particularly loved filtered coffee for the first time. It stunted our growth, but it would never... It would never stand against our notions which exploded because walks were all the rage. Come on, Ireland with a walk. Didn't know quite what to do with a walk in 1996. People in Roscommon were, well, I presume, baptising children in walks around that area. Kiwis as well, brand new. God knows what they did, but I'd say A&E units were filled with people. Filled with Kiwis, if you know what I mean. Skin and all. <clears throat> and just in case you're wondering what we're buying now... This from Anthony Dawson's statistician at the CSO on Drive Time. Air fryers, smartwatches, wireless speakers and headphones, they kind of show the, the technology changes that have come in. And then in, in terms of what we're eating and drinking, milk and meat substitutes and spring onions is another one that we've added in. Spring onions, eh? As well as non-alcoholic beverages and gin. And all of that, a nice little lead-in before we get to more revelations of goings-on at the Montrose Mothership. Is there no end to it? The Oireachtas Media Committee met on Wednesday. Eyebrows and temperatures were raised at the exit package of €450,000 given to RTE's former Chief Financial Officer, Breda O'Keefe. On Thursday's Morning Ireland, Justin McCarthy put this to Media Committee member Fine Gael's Alan Dillon. When Kevin Backhurst revealed that figure of €450,000 at the committee yesterday, you asked him to repeat it. Was that because you didn't hear him or because you you couldn't believe the scale of that figure? Well, certainly the 450,000 exit package uh, is truly astonishing. It's a staggering sum of money. Um, there, there was audible gasps at the committee hearing uh, when Mr Backhorse disclosed uh, this exit package uh, upon the departure of, of Breda O'Keefe. And I think what's even more distressing is that RTE will be responsible for the tax bill on this staggering storm, uh, sum. And, you know, for me, uh, this implies that the taxpayer will ultimately be liable that, for any and potential that, massive that, that tax That has yet bill. to be determined by, by the revenue commissioners who, who will make a, a determination uh, on that. Um, but we do know in relation uh, to, to that payment that proper procedures were, were not followed. 
And again, former Director General Dee Forbes was absent from that committee, citing health issues. Former Board Chairwoman Moya Doherty and former Director of Strategy Worry Coveney also declined requests to attend the committee. Among the many fiery and frankly uncomfortable exchanges at that hearing, Drive Time brought us this exchange between Sinn Féin's Imelda Munster and Head of HR, Emer Cusack. If you were doing your job as Director of HR, you could have said, I can't sign that because it says I was approved by the Executive Board. If I signed that, I would be party to a lie. That's the point I'm making, and I'm telling you the truth. It was <laughs> No, but I'm telling you the truth. You're downplaying the fact. Yeah, but my point is that at no stage did you intervene as head of HR. At no stage did you speak up and say what has been done here is wrong. So my next question is, and I'm, believe me when I say I'm trying to understand here, my next question is, were you afraid of D Forbes? Were you afraid of questioning her? Were you afraid of, you know, tackling her on this? Were you afraid of her? I had, no, I had no reason not to trust that the savings wouldn't be That's made. That's not my question. I asked because of what we've just gone through, where there were three different opportunities for you to speak up, and each one you said, I didn't question it, That was she was the head book cat. Mm-hmm. So I'm asking you, in your position as director of HR, were you afraid to question D Forbes? I wasn't afraid of D Forbes. You weren't afraid of her. You absolutely weren't. So that means then, that is clear enough then, that means that you just didn't do your job. You weren't afraid to question her. You knew what she was doing was wrong and you did not do your job. That's, that's, the, that's it in a nutshell. Mr Backhurst, what do you think on hearing that? That a member of your executive board hadn't done their job, wasn't afraid to hold the former director general to account, just didn't do her job? Yeah, I've spoken... And then, mm. and just, just to say, we're talking about trust. Yeah. Now, the public hear this and they're going to see that that executive is still on the board, still in the same position, and has literally no excuse for not doing their job, was complicit in this all the way along. Yeah, I I don't think... um, I've spoken to Ema about this a lot. Um, I think Ema recognises she did question it. She probably should have questioned it more. I think it's important to remember that um, this was the chief executive to someone who joined the organisation a relatively short time, instructing her to do it, and instructing her working with the CFO, who was a peer of Ema's at the time, who was overseeing financial aspects of the scheme. I think Ema recognises that this shouldn't have happened. I would say one thing, Deputy, um, which is, from what I have discovered about RT, this is the way the organisation was run, in a siloed way, with decisions being taken outside of the normal routes, avoiding governance, not going through the executive, not going to board when they should. From Wednesday's Dahl Committee hearing... And on that same day, it was also revealed that former Director of Strategy Rory Coveney, who resigned last year, also received an exit package, the details of which have not been disclosed. With Claire on Thursday, Fionnán Sheehan, Ireland editor with the Irish Independent. He was responsible for Toy Show the Musical. That lost over £2 million for RTE. Now, we don't know the level of that payment. Do you think that more pressure will come to bear on RTE to reveal that amount, despite the fact that Kevin Backer said yesterday he was legally prevented from doing so? Yeah, but both of them now have question marks uh, hanging over them, which is basically, well, how much? How much went to to Rory Coveney, who resigned, we were told, uh, at that particular time? The point was, was that that's been made is basically in the private sector, if you resign, you go out the door and, and, and that's it. In RTE, it seems if you resign, 
you you go with some form of, of exit package. Now, Kevin Backer said yesterday when he was asked about Breed O'Keefe's, it's confidential, there's legal issues at, at play here, uh, We I, I can't say, but ultimately he relented there because he was told this is in the public interest. So it's difficult to understand now why Breed O'Keefe's figure is in the public interest, but other figures for other executives are not in the public interest to, to divulge those. So I, I think that issue, it, it's going to hang over Kevin Backer's today. Okay. So yet more questions left unanswered. With Colm on Late Debate, Independent TD for Cork Southwest, Michael Collins. In the absence of, I suppose, trust being restored, Michael Collins, do you think it's too early then for government to make a decision uh, on the licence fee? Should that be contingent on that? Should there be a waiting period? Or is it time to put RTE on a stable footing on the basis of the assurances that were offered to the committee today? I think the, <clears throat> I think the public out there would like to see uh, RTE on a stable footing. But unfortunately, uh, we've been drip-fed week in, week out, month in, month out with different information or new news or new information that makes the the whole uh, running of RT calls into serious, serious question. And today this figures are 450,000 exit package. This talks about the toy show that will cost 2.2 million, uh, made a loss of 2.2 million, where board members were not uh, told, or some were told that they were, uh, it was going to make a profit. What I, I question, it comes into question, what was the board doing in the first place? So our national uh, broadcasting station needs to be put right. It needs to come out clean. Clean, and it's not coming clean. It seems like everything is like dragging blood out of a turnip. Mr. Uh, Broker said that, you know, he wants to put things right. He wants to re-establish uh, trust. He said that uh, he wants to put confidence. There's, there's no confidence at this present time in RT. Mm, from late debate. And while the decision not to bring Breda O'Keefe's exit package to the board was an error of RTE's making, not Ms O'Keefe's and it's all perfectly legal. Now though, pressure to return the money. To quote Minister for Media Catherine Martin, it's a moral obligation. On Morning Ireland yesterday, Mary put this to Brian Stanley, Chair of the Public Accounts Committee. You, the Minister, your political colleagues, you may all be outraged and Kevin Backhurst and the staff in RTE may be outraged and the public is outraged. But if Brido O'Keefe's departure package is in line with the 2017 voluntary exit package, though not approved by the Executive Board, isn't that it? It's her money. She's entitled to keep it. Well, legally, that may be the case. Uh, but I think what's enraging people is and uh, what I feel frustrated about is that we have had almost eight months of drip feed of information from RTE at this point. And you will recall many times throughout last summer, I called it, I called an RTE to put all of the information up on the table, any deals, any malpractice, all information regarding false accountancy or, and everything else, or secret payments or concealed payments or private deals should all be put on the table. Had that been done, uh, we would be able to draw a line with all of this and RT move on. I suppose for the viewers, for the public to see it, uh, Kevin Backhurst, the Director General, actually stating this in public would be, you know, would be a shock maybe to a lot of the public. Um, but nothing shocks me at this stage. But I think what we have to see is this: is, is that the, this this deal, this deal with Breed O'Keefe, there was no business case for it. Um, the the uh, the post the post wasn't advertised. She stepped out, and another CFO stepped in, which meant that 
you know, there was no saving whatsoever here. Uh, and there was I, no case whatsoever. Yeah, there wasn't and, redundancy. And, trying, and there should be no redundancy payment. Yeah, what I'm trying to get to, Brian Stanley, is where you go from here in the Public Accounts Committee because responsibility, McCann Fitzgerald clearly said in their report, uh, for that lies with RTE. It does. And I think that, uh, you know, while, while this happened, uh, the period that this happened in, you know, is back four years ago, we have the situation as well with Rory Coveney uh, and this is this is nearly worse because this actually happened as all of the scandals in RT were were being poured out on the table. From yesterday's morning Ireland, but as Mary said, where to now? On Thursday's drive time, Cormac put this to Emma O'Kelly of the NUJ. What do you think needs to happen now in terms of reform, in terms of future attendance at LSS media committees? What's to be gained, I suppose, from a further extrapolation or uh, inquisition of this slow-moving debacle before we move on to the, um, the funding model? I don't think we will ever manage to move forward fully unless we look at the wider context to all this and address the wider context. And the wider context is RTE being starved of public funding for years and years and years, for decades, in fact. And in that context, commercial income became king. It was the holy grail. And it's no accident that if you look, say, at the debacle that was Toy Show the Musical, that grew out of a call for ideas when the organisation was facing a 60 million hole in its Mm -hmm. finances. It was like, give us ideas, we'll grab this one, we'll run with it. And that's where this debacle grew out of. So unless we address not only the the funding model, and I'm glad, I'm really heartened to see that there seems to be some kind of a consensus growing around we need this addressed, but also the amount of funding, RTE, if if politicians really value public service media, as they all say they do, they need to fund it adequately. Okay. Back in a bit. Welcome back. It's Beyonce, so we know it's good. But is it country? This ain't Texas. Yeah, and with a title like Texas Hold'em, it's as country as grits, biscuits, cheating. Well, not so, say some at US radio stations. Clean Hagen joined the drive time hoedown. It's very good, <laughs> but is it country? You know what? It definitely is country. It's obviously not your old, like, classic country, but it's definitely modern country. And even, like, at the beginning of the clip there, you could hear that dobro instrumentation, which is a classic instrument used in country music. And further throughout the song, they've got the banjo, they've got the fiddle. That beat as well is perfect for line dancing. So, in my opinion, I would say 100% modern country. And I think it's phenomenal, and it's, it's very sad to hear that the radio stations over in the US won't play uh, Beyonce's music just because they fit, they believe that she's just sings pop music, which mm. has never been the case. She's an artist that has always pushed the boundaries. She's so creative and she never allows anyone to pigeonhole her. And at the end of the day, music is music. And yeah. I 100% believe that is for sure modern country music. Oh, no messing with Beyonce. On symphonics, the brass section. And you might think you know the trombone, but with a toilet plunger, well, needs must. Despite its rather simple construction, the trombone is remarkably versatile. It has no pistons or buttons to press, and the different notes are created by varying the length of the slide. And first up, the infamous glissando. Next up, some mutes. This first one can be found in a bathroom. 
an actual toilet plunger used as a trombone mute. Yes, seriously. First, here's the sound of the Harmon mute or the Wawa mute. And now the Pixie mute. This has a thinner sound and is used more so in early jazz. This is incredible. He's almost making the trombone talk here. And finally, he shows off his lovely vibrato. Oh, fabulous vibrato entirely, courtesy of Mick Marshall of the RT Concert Orchestra. On the drama on one, The Shepherd by Garrett Baker. Jim and Louise have a new baby. Ah, but then they get a knock on the door from Dara, played here by a menacing Stephen Ray. What's going on? Oh, well, what's going on, Jim? Jim, doesn't it break your heart to see her so bewildered? Louise, if I may say, you're one of those good-looking women whose beauty is enhanced with a touch of sadness and bewilderment. Don't you touch her. Wouldn't dream of it, Jim. Just it seems to me you've left her in the dark a little. It seems to me that you've been trying to shoulder a great burden. Today, Jim, I hope to relieve you of that burden. Get out of my house. No, no, we've been through all this, Jim. That's the wrong attitude to take. Now. What's that? It's a document, Louise. Louise... Did you notice how Jim looked at this document? Isn't it funny how Jim doesn't get a bit scared of a big fella like me and then he sees a little piece of paper like this and he's like a little boy lost in a great big department store. Do you want to just stop taking the piss and tell me what the hell it is you're here for? No, no, no. Dear, oh dear. Louise, it looks like I'm going to have to tell Jim what's what. Jim. Jim. This document. This document entitles me to something. The first thing it entitles me to is a certain degree of respect. So don't be acting the big man, because this means, in this situation, Jim, I'm the big man. All right? What does it say? It says everything in this little house is not what it seems. Scary would not want him to come calling either late or early. The Shepherd by Garrett Baker from the drama on one. Now, Friday's Oliver. Little bit of an experiment. A roving reviewer, not a professional, but hey, everyone's got an opinion. Here is actor Norma Sheehan and she went to see The Iron Claw. It's a wrestling story. Here are the reviews. The Guardian gave it a rave review. Bulked up Zac Efron is an amazing sight in tragic wrestling drama. Um, the Irish Independent, Efron grips the audience in soulful ring drama. The Irish Times says wild true story makes for a darkly tragic, completely gripping old school TV movie. And uh, it goes on and on. People love this film. What did you make of it? I wouldn't even give it a one star. I'm very sorry. I can't be responsible oh for gosh. anyone out there taking two hours out of their lives to see this. To start with the wigs, awful. The wigs were just terrible. <laughs> Couldn't look them. So it's a, what is it's the story of a professional wrestling family. Do you know the story? Yeah, the Von Eriks, right? So it's a yeah. professional wrestling family. I don't want to give too much away, but it's it's miserable. 
That's like, yeah, it's, it's it's well known in the reviews that there's a tragedy somewhere along the way. Are we allowed we to give away anything about, like... No, you don't have to. The misery sure. every four minutes. <laughs> the misery sounds like the wigs. Is that, uh, well, it's because um, you're in the business. Yeah, well, I mean, the business is, if Zac Efron gets an award for this, this is this is bad because he's playing, uh, I think it's nearly a 40-year-old virgin, right? He's about the height of myself, right? He's playing a six foot two. 40-year-old virgin, right? Odd casting, all right. Come on. There's no way you look at him and you go, someone hasn't got the leg over. Do you know what I mean? Like, he just doesn't pull it off at all. Um, yes, he's bulked up. He, he's he got budgie smugglers on from start to finish. Um, <laughs> and hours. even that, that didn't attract a lot of people. All of them had budgie smugglers on and even that because they're so bulked up that if you're too bulked up, the budgie isn't impressive. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> the budgie is in the bunker. The budgie's in the bunker. So, uh, so you're sitting. You went to see this in the cinema. Yeah. And uh, you're sitting there. Did you? I stayed awake. (laughs) I didn't walk out, and I. Did you think about it? Did I think about it after? Walking out. I was angry. Yeah. I mean, I was angry at you. (laughs) Only that that we're cousins. I. I. (laughs) I wouldn't be talking. Third Third cousins. Third cousins. Sorry, we. Just my core connections. I better clarify there. When we were rehearsing the matchmaker and we were doing the love scenes. My aunt, he texted me going, you know, he's your third cousin. <laughs> your grand... Anyway, sorry, that's too much for the air, is it? <gasps> Far too much. Not sitting on the fence anyway. Norma Sheehan with Oliver. Meanwhile, on the arts programme, Bellow, a production between experimental theatre company Broken Talkers and Danny O'Mahony, a musician for whom the accordion is all. There is a moment where they take the accordion off you and you are on stage... Without it, what is that feeling? It's it's a it's a bare feeling, and it's uh, quite a vulnerable feeling. I have kind of sat with with this as as my barrier between me and others. Mm. And you're hold, you're almost hugging the you're, you're hugging the the accordion there as a kind of a, a as you say a, a, to protect you as much as to protect it. Yes, indeed. And and that's my all the sense of it. As soon as I got my first accordion, it was Christmas Eve, nineteen eighty five, and I I remember looking at it for hours that night, just getting lost in the patterns of the celluloid of the shiny new red instrument and the the reflection of the mother of a pearl buttons, and it was like you know I, I had found what I was yearning for, and and I, I from that point on I uh, I I was just in need of it really I I had found what I was looking for in terms of a a companion I guess and when he picks up that accordion to play he's drawing on tradition are you transported to somewhere as you play or what is that set of emotions within you yes is the very short answer to that because like when when I think of that piece I, I think of where I played it perhaps last or who was there and I have this sense I suppose Sean and and it's probably to do with with getting older. When I play in recent years, I want it to be of real value. So each time I play, I want it to be worthwhile, valuable, impactful, so that it's a a valuable shared experience. And when I think of those pieces, I think of the people that I valued, perhaps where I got the tune, who gave me the tune initially. You know, I'm, I'm there with me while I'm playing it. And I, I, I feel their input yeah. while I play. Yeah. <laughs> 
Oh, that is quite beautiful. And let's face it, the world needs as much beauty as possible right now. This week, the city of Rafah in Gaza was the focus of a proposed ground offensive by Israeli troops. Spokesperson for the Defence Forces, Lieutenant Colonel Peter Lerner, joined Sarah on Monday's drive time. If you get an instruction from the government to move forward and you know the area is full of people who have nowhere to go, you'll move forward? No, but that's what I've, what I've said and what, what I implied is that if we are required to move forward, it will be in conjunction with everything we've done up to now to mm. evacuate people from places and, and to, where? to create to create safer zone. If we're moving into the south, then people can move can move north, just for example, is hypothesizing. I don't want to um, do that too much because of the, the facts. We need mm. to create and devise the plan of action, create that reality so that if we are instructed to mobilize, the civilians will be able to move elsewhere. And, and north where there's nothing, where, which has been completely destroyed. But, you know, this people kept telling us that it was impossible for people to go south. And people went south. So instead of uh, saying how not to do this, how not to get rid of Hamas, how to, we have to create a new reality on the ground. And of course, we have to do it in a way that uh, gets the civilians out of, out of harm's way, uh, move them from the, the combat zone where Hamas is hiding. I mean, we've revealed time and time again that Hamas will conduct their activities from within the residential areas, mm. hide hostages in homes, uh, in the tunnels beneath uh, uh, schools, mosques, um, their data center, which was being held ben- and, and intentionally positioned mm. beneath UNRWA's headquarters. Uh, I must ca- have to go. From Monday's drive time. Yesterday, Claire spoke to Scott Lucas, Professor of US and International Politics at the Clinton Institute at UCD. As I said, Joe Biden has told the Israeli Prime Minister that he shouldn't go ahead with that ground offensive in Rafah without a plan to protect the civilians. What do you think the state of play is there? Those warnings have been made repeatedly and we know as well on the other side that there are negotiations around a ceasefire. Do you think that Israel will go into Rafah in the way that they have said they will? Certainly, if Prime Minister Netanyahu has his way, yes, there will be an Israeli assault on Rafa, just as there has been by stages an Israeli assault on the north of Gaza, then the Israelis moved to the center of Gaza, and then having told Palestinians, well, you can go to southern Gaza, that's where you'll be safe. Since December, they've been attacking southern Gaza, moving in and attacking the city of Han Yunus, and then saying, well, even though we told you you could go to Rafa, you'd be safe there, and you now have more than half of Gaza's population who are in Rafa. Uh, now saying that Rafa itself would be under threat. Uh, in terms of the American statements by Biden and his other officials, I just must be honest with you and your listeners, talk is cheap. So unless the Americans back up their words with substantive action, and substantive action probably means actually cutting military assistance to Israel, including provision of some of the bombs and weapons that the Israelis are using to kill people, including kill civilians, unless the Americans take an action like that, Netanyahu and the war cabinet can shrug it off. Uh, The only check on them, I think, is going to be pressure from within Israel if Israelis themselves begin to question the value of such an operation. Professor Scott Lucas with Claire yesterday. Back in a bit. Welcome back. 
Oh, it's all over now. Oh yes, we're back to scrapping, sulking and idly wondering, mm, could we have done better? But Wednesday was St Valentine's Day. Roses, chocolates, squishy teddy bears and much of the radio this week devoted to matters of the heart. But it is with the loins we will start. In a joint Claire to talk commitment in the natural world and to borrow a phrase, durable relationships. Blue tits, for example. Monogamous. Mostly. But what a lot of cases we find with DNA analysis in any bird's nest. So even if these two blue tits are, you know, madly in love and in your nest box, you know, they, they'll have a bit inside when the other isn't looking. So a missus may be mate with the blue tit next door. And when they do DNA analysis on the young in the nest, only five of them might belong to daddy who's minding them and three might belong to the man over the hedge. And this, of course, is apparently good from a point of view of genetic variation. Maybe the fellow over the hedge is a better male. Maybe those babies will be more resistant mm-hmm. to disease. So we're trying to let a woman off on, on the technical term, Your <laughs> Honour, that it was for my DNA I was doing, if nothing else. And would Mr Blue Tit ever find out now that that went on? Or he oh, there'd be war if there was, yeah. So they do it snakily. They're not going to be doing it publicly in the box. Yeah. And the man will be but he's no way of knowing. Like, he's going to look catch, at them and say... catches them in the act. But I mean, the act doesn't last very long. So generally speaking, he won't catch them in the act. He's, he's not going to look at the the blue tits that aren't his and say they don't look like me. That's He's just never I mean. going to figure it out, is he? I mean, lots of males don't. I mean, it's the wise child isn't just that knows his own father in any species, God knows. Isn't the male infiltrator a brave fellow now to go into a garden and do that? I know, she sneaks off. Oh, she oh, does Oh, she, no, the woman sneaks off oh, for the bit inside. He, right. man doesn't come in. I had it all wrong. Oh, I thought he was coming in to the territory of the couple. but no, she sneaks off. So he... But can you blame her? Because when they met, it was all love songs, shiny feathers. Now, well, more sitting in the tracksuit bottoms, scratching. Now, the bullfinches are an interesting one. That's the fellow with the big red breast and the black head and mm-hmm. his wife is a pale image of himself. And they have a little whispery song, not like the lovely songs you get from goldfinches and linnets and things. Because once they mate, that's it. Your man doesn't have to be singing to, to attract a woman anymore. He has her and that's it. And he finds it hard to sing, does he? Or he's well, not good at know. it? No, he doesn't. I mean, why would you waste energy singing? It takes a lot of energy to yeah. be up there singing. So he's happy not bird. to have to go and do that. So he doesn't have to because, I mean, he has his missus for life. So why would you use his energy for something else than yeah. from singing? So sad so cynical. But with Oliver, a man from a dating agency who was not pulling his punches. Swiping left, swiping right. Exhausting. You're on all the time. Never mind the ghosting. People are quite jaded. Uh, the amount of time and effort that goes into online dating, uh, they call me every single day and they say, look, where are all the genuine people? What's wrong? Why are, why are there so many disingenuous people? Why are they lying all the time? So people are, are quite tired. They spend two to three hours a night sometimes swiping right and left. They have to be witty constantly. They have to respond within seconds, otherwise they get abused. It's it's it's, it's a hard work uh, online. I'm not saying it doesn't work for anybody. I'm not it saying does, that at it all. It does work for some. It, it does, of course. When does it work for some people? Do you know? If you're willing to put the effort and the time in, or if you're really oh, lucky, um, but you need very thick skin. That's Fergal Harrington of Intro Matchmaking. He might take you on, but first, a little bit of tough love. Men become quite difficult on age when they hit 40. Men will ring up and say, hey, do you have any 22-year-olds on the books? And I say, yes, of course we do, but they don't want to meet you, John, so I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way. There's, it's a two-way street. Uh, but no, usually if, if a woman is calling us and she's saying, I'm 45, usually what works best is from her own age up to, but never more than sort of six or seven years older. That age range is perfect. But I get 65-year-old men ringing up every day saying, now they think it's time they started a family, so they'd like to meet a 35-year-old because they lived at home on the farm with the parents. Yeah. And Mammy sort of said, Arsher, don't go anywhere now, stay where you are with me, look after 
us. And, and they've been reading John B. Keane. A little bit of that. They still think it's the field. It's and all, yeah, all the matchmaker and side and all that. So, yeah, we have to be very honest with him. But it's, it, it is sad because it's still quite common to get those calls every single day. But what about the women? What's on their fantasy wish list? Women are looking for uh, highly educated, uh, unbelievably tall men, six foot, you know, two, six foot four. Irish, Irish we, women. Yeah, to which we have to respond. The average height of a man is five foot seven and a half. So there again with the L, uh, you know, the facts. Uh, yeah. and, and But they will often say stuff like, well, I'm only being honest with you by telling you, Oliver, that that's what I want. Yeah. And I say, you can say you're only being honest, but it, the reality is they don't exist. There's only 30% of, of Irish guys over six foot. So that's what we have to be, the voice of reason. So yes, the, the age, the, the, the height thing. A lot of women will say, I want someone active and sporty because I'm very into Pilates and yoga and I eat fish all the time. So my complexion is very youthful looking and I drink 10 pints of water a day. So we do feel good about ourselves a lot of the time, Oliver. Uh, and they're, they're looking for their counterpart. So managing those expectations. Uh, they're looking for guys who are well-cultured, highly educated. But the problem there is for every one woman in Ireland who has third level education, there's only 0.6 of an equivalent male. So we need to try and say to those women, please don't judge the guy just because he left school early, started his own business and is a massively successful entrepreneur. <laughs> so be open to that. So they're looking for postcodes. A lot of that. Okay. A lot of, not for financial uh, stability, but more for intellectual compatibility, they feel. They feel the guy won't be amazing uh, talker unless he went to Trinners for winners. Ooh, but assuming you do park the fantasy, you might just meet a person that you like, even love. Nevertheless, it was surprising how quickly and definitively Harrington put this one to bed. 29th of February, yes. women proposing to men. These are people already in couples. Indeed, yeah. Should yeah. they do it? In our experience, no, it's a terrible idea. It ends in disaster and breakups because okay. it emasculates the man. The and man can't take it. He resents her then for doing she, that. So she's dragging him kicking out of him anyway. Well, probably not. If, she, if, he, if he won't do it himself, he probably shouldn't. Oh my, come on, you 21st century men and women. With Joe on Wednesday, it was all love. But of course, it being Liveline, even love is tinged with drama. And in this case, potential death. Pat met Julie, smitten, but then... You met your wife. You met your wife yeah. after... And, and you had a heart attack. Yeah, I had my heart attack, yeah. It was traumatic for me, but I cannot, cannot okay. imagine the shock she got. What? Stop that music. Not wonderful tonight at all, I imagine. What happened? You met Julie in the art gallery. And yeah. then when did you have the cardiac? Uh, four days later. Oh, good God. Yeah, and here we are, 16 cents later, and, and two pacemakers, and, and a defib fitted, and I'm flying. Whew. And it turned out Pat had proposed to Julie on the John Murray show. If anyone out there ever has a gut feeling about somebody, don't be afraid to say it. You know, the, you know, the worst thing that happens is they can say no, but don't walk away from an opportunity of meeting someone who you feel is compatible. And on that note, I want to declare my total love for Julianne Corcoran. And I want to ask her, Julie, will you cement our total relationship over the last 10 years and marry me? Yes. <laughs> Yes, thank you so much. Pat. Joe, you're an awful man. <laughs> <laughs> you're I, love, I love, I love, I love the, uh, the, the, the words of the, the man from Cavan, Julie. And you were so wrong, Julie, I love you. And after so many years, will you cement our relationship? Oh, are you a, bu- are you a builder or something? Cement. <laughs> <laughs>
Are you a builder? No. <laughs> and, uh, well, Riley, Riley's cement is not far away from me. <laughs> okay, but you, but you've 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 had a concrete relationship ever since. Well done. Well, well, well done. Excuse me, we've had a, a concrete. Yeah, it's okay. been so, just just fantastic. Yeah. Oh, Pat and Julie with Joe. But if you're out there thinking, ah, what about my life, single and not too shabby? Well, with Miriam, Dr. Bella Di Paolo, a social scientist whose TED Talk about the single life has been viewed over 1.6 million times. She has a new book out, Single at Heart. People who are single at heart love being single and they want to stay single. They are happy and flourishing because they are single, not in spite of it. I'm one of the single at heart and single single life is our most meaningful, fulfilling and psychologically rich life. It's our most joyful life. And we shouldn't pay any attention to other people who try to pressure us to couple or who are skeptical about whether we really love our single lives because if we caved into them we'd end up living lesser lives lives that didn't really suit who we really are but if you think the world is made for couples into the ark in twos you might be right sad singleton bridget stereotypes still abound and look when you started your research i think you asked single friends and colleagues how they were treated differently i mean what did they say to you bella Oh, there's all sorts of ways. They were treated almost like they they just weren't as valuable as those awesome couples. For example, at work, they might be asked to cover for the couples who want to leave early or take the vacation days that nobody else wanted or coming on holidays. When uh, they're socializing with other people, people who are part of a couple sometimes socialize mostly with other couples. And so instead of seeing their single friends on weekends or, you know, dinners or movies, they instead demote their single friends to lunch or brunch or something that's more like kid time rather than a grown-up time. And if single people are visiting other people in their homes, they might get assigned the a couch in the living room instead of a bedroom with a door that closes. So in all sorts of ways, they just aren't treated like they're equal status or equally mature as those married couples. And in her view, there were many single people who were very happy with their lives and their choices. But some well-meaning questions persisted. Do people say, oh, you just haven't met the right person yet? Yes, they do. It's kind of annoying. (laughs) But they totally are misunderstanding what it means to be single at heart. And I was most persuaded by the single at heart people who shared their life stories with me, who told me that they did find the one. They found someone they loved and who loved them, who treated them well, who were willing to do what it takes to make them ha- make each other happy. And yet, it still didn't work. Couple life was just not their best life. And it, no matter how much they loved the person or were loved in return, They just didn't want to lead that kind of life. From Sunday with Miriam. Meanwhile, the Darcy and Bernard O'Shea asking lots of awkward questions. But apparently one of the most beautiful ways of expressing your love for your dear one is a vasectomy. (laughs) So this this is in a heterosexual relationship, so a man would get a vasectomy for... 
Yeah. And that, that's a present to his, his Well, apparently, right, yeah, So right. I did look into this, right? So it, it shows a commitment. It shows that you express your way, that your love for not to have more children, that you've bonded it, you've expressed the trust, mm. intimacy and mutual responsibility. But for me, you've also, you're showing, look what I'm willing to do to my best friend for you. <laughs> Right. right, like you know, so it's like so, and it's painful. So if they want to get back at you for anything, you know, like you know, and and you can say, or if you want to really expect, you can say you can do it. Do you know what I mean? Like, so. No, I, that, that's not that's not a good suggestion. Don't try this at home. <laughs> don't now, try. Don't try at home. <laughs> you can't get a kit or anything. Now, now, now Bernard, um, I did discuss it on air years yeah. ago. Yeah, uh, I, I I said I would be willing to get a vasectomy as long as we could do it on air. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, and then so when, I'm when up we got next ho- Friday. Am I doing it? <laughs> no. <laughs> when we got home, Jenny said, to you, "What? Are you, what were you doing? What were you doing? What were you saying that for?" So it, it it never happened. Would you get one? Would you still consider getting one? Oh God! Will we get one together? We can, <laughs> we'll hold hands on air. I don't think it works. I don't think you can do a, a, a sort of a, a, friends together vasectomy. There are two for one a kind of a deal. Is is it on the VHI? I don't even know. Like I don't know. It, right, I don't okay. Know. Oh please no! Although it could be riveting radio. Let's go to the dance floor. A one Chardon. That was kind of the voice would break during the slow set. Do you feel my heart beating? I do. do you I do. It's hungry do for chips. <sighs> You're hallucinating because of the smoke, and also the nightclub can't afford much dry ice, so just uh, get the slow set underway and out of it. These are the teenage years, the, 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 the rituals of the shift, the meat, as it's called in parts of the country. The, the meat with two E's. But the meat also involved. Okay, we'll leave. Uh, what is, what's the other days of, of Thunder one? Is this? Oh, yes. This and it feels oh, wow. Pure filth is what it is. Actually, that kind of makes me think of ads for um, uh, feminine hygiene products is the best way of saying The slow set went on into the night. I remember the 90s. I don't remember Madonna in the 80s. Some people out there will. This wasn't a slow set in my day. Oh, Madonna, you make some of us feel young, even though you're still around. Just won't go away, really. Cutting you off right there, sir. Noticing of Madge on our watch. And that is it from this week's playback. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week.